Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. I am your host with the most, Michael Leary, alongside of uh, another host, Timothy John Stafford, with the least. Nope. Wow. And um, we are excited to have some more time with you. So thank you for giving us the great honor of playing a small part of your day today. Um, Timothy has a big weekend coming up, and Timothy, he looks like he's in his early 20s, but in actuality, (laughs) and and this is very disturbing, he's in his 40s. Yeah, we had this conversation yesterday where we were like, I very clearly remember my parents turning 40, and being Uh, like, wow, that's almost dead. Yes. And then we hit 40, and we're like, oh, crap. Yeah, it feels pretty young. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. So, but you've got a big weekend, Timothy. It's true. So tell us, just give us a little flavor. Well, you know, you get to your 40s and you kind of think this time of your life is over, but it's I not. have a bachelor party this weekend. My one of two this year in the next Whoa. few months. Whoa. Yeah. Now, how old is the uh, intended? That's a great question. Mid 30s. Okay. So they're, so they're still alive and kicking. Yeah. So um, let's talk about bachelor parties for middle-aged people just for okay. a second. Like, you think there'll be some card playing? Will there be some, um, you I know, there'll so, be some cards, you know, uh, Catan, some risk, maybe? <laughs> maybe. We are camping and it is raining. So mm. just to kick it off. You are camping. Yeah. And it's raining. Yes, sir. <laughs> Nothing says party. Yeah. Like just being soggy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seriously. Uh, and, and so you have a tent? Yeah, but I have since decided I'm driving my for, my old forerunner out there and I'm going to sleep You're in gonna that. You're going to sleep in that, yeah. That's, that's. I was trying to figure out different ways. Like, I can tough that out. I've slept in the rain many times before. Like, I can tarp it and elevate it and do all these things. But yeah. Or I could just sleep in the back of my truck. So let me ask you a question, Timothy. Yeah. What what kind of activities go on? Um, I mean, I, I can imagine certainly some uh, of the liquid variety, no question. But like, are we going to throw axes? Or is there, you know, do you? <laughs> I wish. That sounds awesome. Like, what do you do? I don't know. It's, uh, you know, our mutual friend. Uh, Brandon's throwing it. It's his little brother. Ah, oh, got it. So it's my brother-in-law. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure. I've been kind of checked out. Been very busy until today, the day we're leaving. So when people hear this, though, it'll be post. Yeah, and we'll need a full. VC. We'll need a full report, my friend. Yeah, if I if I survive it. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's some skinny dipping. I don't know. It's cold. I don't know. It is on a river. We're camping on a river in the rain. Lots yep. of water. Yep. I'm I'm just saying it right now. That sounds horrific. And um <laughs> I don't know. I hope you have fun. It's better than what I'm doing. Th- I'm well, sure we'll no, it's actually not better than what I'm doing this weekend. My whole family is at home. So, giddy up. What are you guys doing? Big Nate, who knows? We're watching uh, Batman tonight. Oh, I tried to make it happen last night and I yes. tried really hard to figure out how to make it happen this morning. Yes. It's going to have to be Monday. With Robert Patterson, which I never thought I would say. And um, Nate, big Nate is away at college, and so he's home for spring break. And um, and there have been some breakfasts. He's making me lift weights with him at the gym. Nice. And um, no, it's a lot of fun. But anyway, we've got a show today. I was just genuinely curious when you told me off air <laughs> you have a bachelor party. I was like, I want to ask questions about this. Like, what? How does that work? Um, and uh, so anyway, good luck. Don't get sick. <laughs> Watch out for snakes and, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever else. Um, is it going to rain all weekend? I think it's just raining today and tonight. Oh, great. Okay. Fantastic. So That's... Tomorrow and tomorrow night hopefully will be a little drier. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll just be mud. It'll be great. You'll have yeah. a great time. I'm, I'm excited for you. Today, <laughs> uh, we've got a, a couple of things. First of all, I want to thank Teresa and Richard for uh, joining the Patreon team this week. I'm very, very grateful for your kind generosity. Um, We are a 501c3, and we are crowdfunded. And so thank you for 
the support. We're incredibly blessed to be a part of this, in, you know, really, really amazing community. Um, always, 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 we are getting responses. And I mean, just, you know, we have so much email. I think we're going to do another Q&A about the Unity series to wrap that up. We'll do that as a midweek special here coming up. Um, but I wanted to read this one. This one came in the last week or so. And he gave us permission to read the email and use his name. So he said, hey, y'all, my name is Drew. So when you got a y'all in there, you know, he's probably living in the, uh, the southern belt, as they say, I'm assuming. Yeah. He said, I've been resisting for some time sharing my story with y'all. Why resist it? Just let it, let it go. It's going to be great for people to hear. No more resisting. No more. Unless you don't like typing. And then Resistance I, is futile. I get it. He said, not, not for any... I was, I've been resisting it, but not for any particular reason besides the fact that I continue to find the whole conceptual idea of deconstruction as unnecessarily polarizing. I don't mm. view my experience as special, but rather the opposite, common, expected, and part of the human condition, even if that wasn't my framing when first having doubts about my faith. And, and we think that's absolutely true, too. This is not to be something that's scary, although um, uh, it is part of maturing. But there, there are things that sort of add a lot of energy to this, whether it's trauma um, or spiritual abuse or all sorts of things that really accelerate this into high gear. Anyhow, I'd like to start by saying that the church was beautiful to me in my youth and my early college career. I hold no grievances towards former pastors. Rather, I find them to be worthy of my respect. I find my experiences in the church I grew up in as deeply enriching and formative. I love that. However, things took a turn when I went uh, to a missionary organization at their base in Hawaii. After doing my initial mission trip with them, I made the decision to defy my parents' better judgment and drop out of school and serve as an outreach leader at this organization, leaving mounds of debt on my parents' lap in my radically naive attempt to trust God for finances. This profoundly fractured our relationship, but I was taught to view their displeasure as a sign of their lack of trust in God and therefore being wrong in their anger. Man, yeah. and that, I, I've had that same experience with the different uh, organizations. This was the beginning yeah. of a rather dark turn in my Christian experience. After returning to Hawaii, so you do the initial trip and then you kind of come back at a higher degree of commitment. I stepped, after returning to Hawaii, I stepped into something that was altogether different from my first experience with them. In my, quote, training program, it became very top-heavy, legalistic, and surveillant. Leaders would confront us because of dreams they had of our sexual sins. Uh, they would confront us with disapproval of dating relationships and what music we should listen to, plus many other seeming... Wait, leaders would confront... Yes. ...individuals about dreams they had about the individuals? Correct. <laughs> okay. At least that's how it's reading. Yeah. I walked with a deep sense of anxiety because I, I had been approached about my problems with pornography and in attempting to date a girl uh, to which I was attracted, I was told uh, that the reason she would not, uh, that I was the reason she would not be able to grow in her relationship with God. Dang. After six long months on the Big Island as a 21-year-old, I led a team of 12, half of which were older than me to Istanbul, Turkey. <laughs> I felt a wave, of course, I felt a wave of relief leaving the community in Hawaii. However, rather early on in this missions trip, I started having doubts. Why was I in a Muslim country walking the streets trying to beg people to follow Jesus when I didn't know their language, nor did I have a translator? Why would I want to convert a Muslim into Christianity if it meant that they would be disowned by their family and friends, perhaps even killed? Why was I proselytizing if it was illegal in this country? Why did I swindle family and friends to give towards a missions trip in which I was actually doing nothing more than walking the streets, attempting to talk people who didn't speak to my uh, attempting to talk to people who didn't speak my language? Why was I eating at a four-star restaurant on the dime of people who gave money to me? What the hell was I doing leading these people when I was 21 years old with no life experience? Who would let anyone do that? Ha ha. <laughs> oh, such great questions. After three, I love your honesty, Drew. During a long three and a half months, I returned home. Quickly, I became isolated because my parents had moved to a new town. I was 45 minutes away from my friends and worked a job I didn't enjoy. That's where the floodgates opened for me. I started finding everything shrouded in doubt and bewilderment. 
I was angry, sad, and lost. I was in therapy. I lost friends because of my questioning and was cynical of everything. The only peace I found was on a riverbed in the woods. I attempted to find quiet and pray and meditate to save what faith I had left. Quiet solitude and prayer helped me integrate um, and heal my experiences into something altogether new. I balanced out eventually and became much, uh, much more humble, hopefully, in my views and opinions on things. I started to repair relationships with my parents and friends I lost. I started dating that girl that I soon will marry. Nice. I was brutally hurt, but that hurt became the avenue in which I was able to grow and change my view of age-old difficult questions, holding the paradox that is uncertainty. I'm highly critical of the church still and that mission organizations for that matter, but I understand the usefulness uh, that both can be for certain people. I go to church rather begrudgingly, but do so not because I agree theologically with faith statements or because I like it for that matter, but because my family and friends are there and it's a way to hear different perspectives that force me to learn humility, openness, challenge my ideas and love for those I disagree with. That's great. I love that. I like it. I liken it to a spiritual discipline. And, and this is such a good line. Sometimes I feel like a good little Christian. Other times I don't think I am a Christian. I wake up each morning to read the scriptures, pray and meditate. But in the afternoon, I find myself brutally aware that perhaps there is no God and I may well be fooling myself. Every day feels like another walk in the wilderness, another exile. My fiance is going to be a neuroscientist. She's had similar experiences to me. She doesn't identify as Christian and that's okay because our values are aligned and we have a profound amount of mutual respect for each other's perspectives. She also comes to church with me, and she was the one that said we should start going again. Ha <laughs> ha. I love uh, her more for that because I know she loves me even if we don't agree on some things. I am a muddled mess of contradictions and paradoxes, and I feel that it's incumbent on me to not try to solve them, but to wrestle with them in tension. Perhaps, maybe, that's where Jesus is. Sorry if that was long-winded, but I've been a long-time listener. I've been influenced much by your perspectives. Thanks for holding the tension that is following Jesus. Well, Drew, we are so honored, man, that you would share that with us. And we keep hearing from people uh, who just email in and say, hearing these stories um, is incredibly helpful. So, you know, to all of you who have courageously put yourselves out there, even if you don't think your story is, you know, exceptionally special or unique uh i think that's what makes it so so good and, and it is funny i i had um similar experiences in college where we are wrapped up in the beauty of idealism and we yeah. are naive and um i wish you know that would have been stewarded better um yes. by by others but it's um, an interesting thing that you're like your frontal lobe hasn't even fully formed so you're like re your ability to reason and uh, at that age is it's not fully developed i mean I, I led a missions trip at that age i might have been 22 yeah to jamaica for we went way too long like two or three months <laughs> oh and man. it was a nightmare it, the whole thing fell apart and oh ruined a lot of different things and I don't know why we were there. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. But we had, it was, it was very idealistic. We had these big ideas from a Christian college that this is what you do. Yeah. This is what we need to do. This is what we're called to do. And that's right. The whole thing exploded and what a, what a mess it made. Yeah. And, and I don't ever want to be the, the guy telling those young folks to calm down. Heck no, man. That is such a wonderful. But I just think it should be stewarded more carefully. Yes, absolutely. You know what I mean? So, I was the oldest adult on that trip. That's, yeah, that's insane. <laughs> that's insane, my friend. On the other side of the planet. Well, I mean, and that has totally prepared you for bachelor parties by the river. That's right. In a van <laughs> down by the river. Down by the river. And a foreigner down by the river. Um, but speaking of controversial topics... That was a transition out of nowhere. We have uh, a wonderful <laughs> such interview. As such as parking on the river. Parking on the river. Um, and leading missions trips when you're uh, 21 or 22. Um, we have a guest on today who has been on our show before. Her name is Bridget Eileen Rivera. 
Um, she is uh, a Christian who is same-sex attracted, identifies as gay, um, and um, has just written a book called Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. And um, she's, she is a, a, a Christian woman who has decided um, to hold the kind of traditional uh, sexual ethic. And so she is uh, celibate, even though she is same-sex attracted. And, um, and I find we've had a number of people on from that perspective over the years, because I just find them really compelling. They're getting shot at from both sides. You know, conservatives saying, oh, you can't be gay and a Christian, and just even being a Christian is something that's sinful. And then um, there are some folks on the other side of the spectrum saying, why would you ever think that the traditional Christian ethic is good? Right. Um, aren't you selling us out? Because people are going to point to you as proof that we should be celibate forever, you know, whatever. And so they sort of stand squarely in the hard-to-map middle ground of the culture war um and so and the book topic i mean i think that i I think i speak for a lot of us regardless of whether or not um you agree with the idea of gay marriage or whatever i think we can almost all agree that there's been a great deal of harm done by the church to that community of people and there there does need to be repentance the, the idea of shaming and excluding them into the kingdom of God has, has just, while at the same time tolerating incredible hypocrisy within our own walls, um, has not really worked out the way <laughs> we thought it was supposed to. So, so um, we were totally, totally interested in having this. When we interviewed her months and months and months ago, she was, um, she'd just finished this book. And so now that it's out, we wanted to have her back on. And I, and I feel it. There's the dryer. <laughs> Hannah, turn the dryer off. <laughs> the dryer will be off. It had to make an appearance. It's jealous. It, it's, Seth has gotten all kinds of airtime. And it's like, no, 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 no. I'm back. I'm back, baby. Um, and, and we just need to re- remind people of a couple of postures that we ourselves try to hold. And as we, we try to hold as we interview people. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, no, no warning because of her, anything that she said, but rather because of the nature of the topic. Um, we just want to remind people, we decided really, really early on when we started doing the podcast that we weren't bringing people on to argue with them. We were bringing people on to hear their best stuff. So our, so our questions are designed to get them going on their best stuff and to not push back unless sometimes they'll be like a hey so how would you respond to this because you know i can hear those voices kind of in my head but that's about as strong as we go and it's not because we don't think everyone including us should be evaluated critically but rather we want their best stuff we want we want them to experience hospitality and um that um and we also realize my goodness there isn't anyone on the planet outside of Jesus of Nazareth that is universally right all the time. So there's this pushback in some Christian circles about, well, yeah, but they, you know, I don't want to listen to them because they said this thing over here. And it's like, right. guys, even Martin Luther, who, you know, our Reformed brothers and sisters love to quote, said some just awful, awful yeah. stuff. Um, and, and yet we quote him without all the disclaimers. So I'm interested in, in perpetually curious in how people not just work theoretically around the idea of, uh, being an LGBTQ Christian, but how does that work itself out in the lived experience of people? And Bridget has just been a really compelling guide for me. Um, and so I commend the interview to her. I commend the book to you. Um, because at the very least, even if you, you think this is all a bunch of, you know, liberal wokeness or whatever, at the very least, there is a, an invitation to repent here that we need to pay, pay attention to, right? Following Jesus means that we listen to the voices of other brothers and sisters in the church community. And if they say they're being harmed, then we pay attention to them. It's exactly what happened yeah. in Acts chapter six, 
right? There were a whole, a whole batch of widows that were being ignored because of their ethnicity, and they made a ruckus, and the, the apostles paid attention, provided a solution. And so we endeavor to posture ourselves that way. And she's pretty rad. Yeah. Let's just let's just say that. So, anywho, that's just the, there's there's nothing in the interview that you know I I think is particularly shocking. But it was rather more an opportunity just to go, hey, this is why we do this, um, and this is why we've had all sorts of people on um, from all sorts of perspectives, and we think that's a really healthy and good thing. So, anywho, Timothy, any last words? Nope. <laughs> what are you gonna wear i don't know i was just thinking about that would you have a poncho i don't think so are you gonna bring yeah. a are you gonna bring a banjo i'm bringing um that was a deliverance reference bringing that you're bringing the guitar you leading you leading some singing yeah some kumbaya nice i like it <laughs> well anyway timothy we want to we want an update Brothers and sisters, enjoy the interview. You guys rock, and we'll talk to you next episode. Nice. Hey, everybody. We're so glad that you are joining us today. Today, we have a very special guest outside of Seth Erie, right, who is here recovering still yep but we have are you ready drum roll please we have bridget bridget eileen Ali. rivera Afira. with us today ladies and gentlemen and you might remember her um we had her on last year and had such a great time we've been eagerly anticipating the book that has come out um it's called heavy burden seven ways lgbtq christians experience harm in the church i have read it and um, you know, is as articulate and intelligent as Bridget is in person. Her writing is that uh, that way also, and so it's really accessible. It's got some heft to it, and it makes some really um, fantastic points. Hey, there, Bridget Cam. No, we're not. We're not even <laughs> going to hit the music right now. So we're going straight into the interview, buddy. Oh, we're going to talk to this Bridget. Yeah, sorry, I can't. I kidding. Nice job. Bridget, hello. Welcome back. How are you? Hi. Thank you so much for having me again. Absolutely. It's really great to be back and to get to talk to you. Well, thank you. How we were talking off air. um, Tell us a little bit about your your PhD and some of the things you're researching these days. I always find this super fascinating. Yeah, so I am getting a PhD in sociology. And so I'm spending a lot of my time doing research and writing a lot, uh, looking at things like data and stuff like that and uh, teaching classes. So I teach a couple of classes um, at a couple of of different colleges here in New York City. So one class I teach is on sociology and then the other one is on uh, crime and juvenile delinquency and so it's a lot of fun and i really enjoy it it's probably my favorite part of getting my phd is getting to nice teach sociology and um, talk to students and all of that so yeah that's what i spend most of my time doing how cool are you as a professor i mean i'm, I'm guessing very cool but like what would Tim's a Tim's a professor and so he knows he knows coolness because coolness sees coolness and so what um like how what's your approach as a professor Steffi Steffi oh well you know I had a lot of uh worry that uh students would uh I guess, see me as like being too young for a professor. Mm. Um, But actually it's been totally cool and um, not at all what I was anticipating. Um, The students have been really great in, you know, being respectful, treating me as if I'm someone who knows what they're talking about, all of that sort of thing. Um, And I guess like my big approach is I like to focus a ton on, um, like discussion and like Socratic method type stuff and kind of pulling things out of 
from students in the form of a genuine conversation about the material that. that we're studying. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of my approach um, because I guess I guess that's like the most fun approach in my mind when totally, like you get totally. to just kind of talk it out with other people and interact with it more. Um, I am not the lecture type. I do not. I just, I cannot get in front of a bunch of students and just lecture for like an hour to an hour and a half. Like I would die. That just sounds terrible. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my style is very conversational, very discussion-based, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. You know, well, the one thing Tim, our professor friend here, never gets asked is, is he too young? And so- That's true. Although I often walk in thinking that I'll be asked that. <laughs> <laughs> do you um uh so I, one of the questions i was going to ask is which of the writing reading and teaching parts do you enjoy most and it sounds like the teaching part is oh pretty yeah sweet yeah is that the is that the dream sure. ultimately is to to land a professorship uh somewhere or do you see more research and writing um focus or what do you what do you think you know, I'm really trying to keep an open mind about where I'll go next after I finish my PhD. Um, I'm, I don't want to kind of get my heart set on one thing or another, because I know that once I finish my PhD, there will be lots of possibilities afterwards. And um it's entirely possible that one door just won't be open, but there will be something else that will wind up opening. And so I just want to kind of keep an open mind um, yeah. and just kind of see what happens and what opportunities present themselves awesome. once I finish. Yeah. How do you feel about Nashville, Tennessee, just as a place to live? You know, I've heard lots of great things about Nashville. I have um, a whole bunch of cousins, actually, who moved down to Tennessee in the nice. Nashville area um, a long time ago, probably like 15, 20 years ago. And um, they really seem to love it. And um, so I've heard nothing but good things. All right. I, well, I just... I, I'm not sure if I could ever move down there um, just because yeah. me and Southern culture don't always get along, but I've heard great things overall. Yeah. I think that's one of the things you should keep on the table. And um, I feel like that's a prophetic word from God and that I live there and <laughs> think you'd be rad. So um, the name of the book, I love because it comes from this rebuke that Jesus gives. Would you give us context for that? I think mm -hmm. that speaks very well to its contents. Uh, yeah, the um, the book was inspired by a verse. Uh, the book title, I should say, was inspired by um, uh, the verse where Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders, where um, he says, woe to you um, because you tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear upon the people, but you yourself are not willing to even lift them with your finger. Yes. And I just feel as if that speaks so powerfully to the condition of LGBTQ people trying to survive in Christian churches. Hmm. We just have so many burdens placed on us that are just not placed on anyone else in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, um, if they were placed on other people, it would be recognized as ridiculous hmm. almost immediately. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah when it's given to an lgbtq person it's seen as justifiable and so i really wanted to speak to what these burdens are um, and speak to uh, the injustice of them and how um, they simply do not come from any kind of um any kind of scriptural backing uh, they mm. in fact come from um, a lot of stigma a lot of assumptions about lgbtq people that are just false and a lot of just plain old homophobia and mm. that's kind of a trigger word and if you you know want to say that homophobia exists in christian communities everybody's like oh no 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 um that's not the case i'm not homophobic but at a certain point i think we have to kind of 
call something what it is and you know stop pretending that the elephant in the room isn't there because if we don't then things aren't ever going to change right and you point out a number of double standards that exist between heterosexual approaches uh or how heterosexuals are dealt with in terms of sexual ethics yeah. and how the lgbtq community is dealt with you just want to highlight a couple of those that come to mind quickly yeah um i think the first one and i'm not i'm not starting actually with the first one that i name in the book i guess i'm maybe right. starting backwards right now but so i think a big one i should say not the first one but a big one is the double standard of who is allowed to ask questions about human sexuality and still have their security in christ guaranteed mm. and the truth of the matter is that there are a whole lot of questions that are open to heterosexual people that they can ask as they are trying to work through uh what they believe about human sexuality like yep. Yeah. Uh, what do I believe about divorce? What do I believe about remarriage? What do I believe about birth control and uh, things like IVF? Uh, Wayne Grudem um, thinks IVF is okay. Others don't, but that's an acceptable thing to think about. There's all of these questions that are totally open to heterosexual people to wrestle with, to think through, to wonder about. And it's okay. It does not automatically mean that's, that your salvation is on the line if you get the answer wrong. Right. But if you are a queer person, there is no asking questions. There is no figuring things out. You have to believe a certain way. And in fact, if you are asking questions about that belief, that automatically means that your salvation is in danger. Mm. And that to me is just unacceptable because how is someone supposed to arrive at um, an authentic belief if the uh, decision is made for them already? Like there's no way to have an intellectually comp honest conversation with scripture if you have this burden placed upon you where coming to the wrong conclusion um, threatens your very relationship with god and so what winds up happening is it's just like you don't touch the question at all mm -hmm. and the pressure just builds up and builds up and builds up until everything just explodes and i think what's often not appreciated because i think there's just this fear that oh my gosh like if we let all the gay people uh question the church's beliefs about homosexuality then things are just going to go off the deep end and they're going to just go like wild and be having sex with anyone and everyone and everything's going to fall apart and it's like actually that's not the case because basic human psychology tells us that the more pressure you put on a person to do a certain thing, to think a certain way, the more likely they are to eventually just completely react against that. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you give people freedom and space to think through things, actually the more likely they are to make whatever decision you wanted them to make in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it's like because yeah because like there's now freedom to make that choice uh nobody likes feeling forced to make a choice even if it's the right one even if it's the good one like if you know someone gives me two options and you know there's one option that is like clearly the right way and there's one option that's clearly the wrong way but then like they start forcing me to make the right choice, I'm, I'm gonna feel like really bitter about that. <laughs> Nobody likes feeling forced to do anything. That's just basic psychology, man. And so it's like, 
that applies in this set of circumstances and mm-hmm. moreover is you know rooted in in a biblical understanding of the of the world you know we have security in jesus christ uh, we have a guarantee of uh, being his children, uh, being um, invited into the kingdom of God, and nothing can snatch us away from his hand. And to say that, like, if you get the definition of marriage wrong, you're automatically not going to be saved. That's really weird and kind of strikes me as like, what the? Like a little bit, a little bit heretical. So I think that's like the first one that comes to mind. And I think that's a really big, a really big one. And I think other, other double standards kind of flow from that, such as uh, the requirement of celibacy and forcing that on people. Um, You know, if, if I told you that you had to be celibate, or else God was going to like send you to hell. You'd be like, whoa, this this chica has lost her mind. What the heck is she trying to say? Uh, but people say it all the time to gay people. And it's it's just so weird. Like why do you why do you think that is? Is it because of the folk devil phenomenon that you identify in the in the book? Is it is it that that makes that that elevates this to the point of hellfire automatic hellfire if you get it wrong i mean what do you think's behind that yeah um i think there's a couple of things that are behind it i think there's been a um, elevation of heterosexuality to a place where it just doesn't belong as if this is uh, the way a person ought to be designed. And so if you are not heterosexual, it means that something's wrong with you. Uh, Not just like, not just kind of like something's off, but like something is off with your human nature. Because, uh, you know, people refer to God's design, people refer to uh, what's natural. And so if you are not heterosexual, then like, there's something wrong inherently with your human nature, such that your very existence is in some way against God's very design. And so... I think that plays into a lot of these types of unrealistic expectations that are placed on queer people because it's like they are constantly seen as this exception um, that like uh, straight people, you know, it's unrealistic to, to require celibacy for straight people because, well, their sexual attractions are natural. Uh, where, whereas for queer people, well, ev- anything that they want is unnatural to begin with. And so, um, therefore, hmm. uh, it, you know, makes perfect sense to... So, it's not like other sins. It's a sin against nature. Yeah, it's not like other sins. It's a sin against nature. Hmm. Um, and I think there's like, um, you know, there's... Uh, people forget that queer people are made in the image of God, just like a straight person, that there is no such thing as someone who is naturally fallen and therefore like their fallen condition is somehow by God's design. I've actually had um, like, major Christian leaders try to argue that straight, try to argue to me that straight people are fallen, but their type of fallenness is nevertheless natural and in like sync with God's design. Whereas gay people's fallenness is unnatural and apart from God's design. And it's really weird because like, to me, if you are fallen, then you are fallen. Like, 
there is our our design is broken all of us and there's like heterosexuality is just as broken just as messed up in terms of what's natural in terms of god's design as homosexuality and i think you kind of got to start there that like it's not it's not like heterosexual people are the natural ones and homosexuality, homosexual people are like these perverts, which I talk about in my book, the creation of the homosexual as a pervert. It's that all of us, all of our sexualities are a perversion in some way of God's design because uh, we're all fallen. Uh, the image of God is broken in all of us, but at the same time, all of us nevertheless bear his image um, and his image is being restored in us um, in uh, ways that are equal. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So, so gay Christian, some people object to that phrase on the basis of this, right? That gay itself is, it's um, antithetical to the, to the Christian identifier. Mm -hmm. and, you, and you talk about that in your book. I'd love to just explore with you, because I, I, I've heard this said a lot, mm -hmm. um, especially against Revoice and that whole approach to, you know, identifying as gay and identifying as Christian and saying it's compatible to be both of those things. Mm -hmm. and, argue, and, and the nature argument you've just talked about is often deployed in defense of that understanding. Yeah. And so how how do you and because I, I mean, obviously, you address it in the book, but I just love to hear you talk it through, like, how do gay and Christian fit in the overall theology of the kingdom of God? Yeah, I think what's important when it comes to that conversation is people have to understand the history of sexual orientation. And you really got to go back to Freudian psychology and understand how that pathology developed and how it completely changed how we think about sexuality. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people have this idea that sexual orientation is some kind of like, you know, anti-God uh, theoretical agenda created by queer theory uh, in order to define people by sexuality. Uh, and actually, nothing can be further from the truth. Uh, sexual orientation was invented in the 19th century by secular sexologists, and it was fine-tuned by Freud, who uh, uh, popularized the concept of homosexuality. He popularized the concept of heterosexuality. And people took that and ran with it, developed a whole pathology around sexual perversion and uh, the idea that there was something fundamentally backward about homosexual people, something that made them fundamentally perverted because... Uh, straight people developed in normal ways but when your development was arrested and something messed it up then you turn out gay and so there's something fundamentally wrong and this is all freud with gay people um their development was messed up in some way therefore they are this way um and therefore because we know exactly what caused them to be gay we can theoretically find some kind of cure for this uh and this like you can read all of the uh christian ex-gay literature and it is Freudian psychology from start to finish. The idea that you had uh, some kind of broken relationship with your parents that caused you to not identify with your same-sex parent because you had some kind of bad relationship with them. And so that caused you to identify with your opposite-sex parent, which caused you to um develop in the opposite way that that you should have and you know ex-gay uh conversion therapy retreats would often tell kids and still will tell kids that uh they have to go back to some kind of trauma that they have with their parents in order to identify why they're gay and um and the interesting thing about this is that this freudian psychology in ex-gay literature gets 
mixed in with this weird twisting of the Bible and scriptural principles where you have like people referring to like Freudian concepts, like your development was off, uh, the idea of like being perverted and then applying biblical concepts on top of that, like some kind of sin in your life caused you to like stumble and go the wrong direction. And now you're gay. And so now you've got to repent. Um, and so then prayer gets mixed in with like these other things of like trying to cure yourself and um, develop a better, you know, relationship to masculinity or femininity. And it all just gets like twisted all together until you get just this mishmash of like mm -hmm. Christianity and Freudianism that ironically, most Christians that I meet don't recognize. Like most most Christians that I meet will openly criticize Freudian psychology, but have no idea that the very principles that most Christians assume to be true about queer people um, completely depend upon Freudian psychology. Uh, and it's just, it's just so fascinating to me. Um, and because of that, there's this misrecognition of who is defining who by sexuality because the idea that people could be defined by their sexual orientation originated by from freud that pathology originated from freud and christians have adopted it hook line and sinker um and it is that um that pathology, that way of seeing human beings that actually defines people by their sexual orientation. And queer people have been fighting against that, have been fighting against being defined by sexuality mm -hmm. ever since the beginning. Um, and so, you know, that was the big push behind the word gay. Uh, which it, the, the push to adopt that was to um, have this alternative to the idea that a person is a homosexual. Like, no, you can't define us by our sexuality. We are gay. Um, and that word was meant to kind of reclaim humanity, that I am a whole person, um, that I am not this, you know, sexual pervert, um, that homosexuality, that concept tries to create. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the big movement to adopt words like gay and lesbian sprang from this kind of resistance uh, to this way of thinking um, and continues to this day with queer theory. Um, queer theory has done the most over the past 20 years to deconstruct concepts of sexual orientation and to bring in and to complicate human identity and say, like, we can't define people by these simplistic things. Um, and interestingly, the people that are some of the biggest critics in Christian circles of queer theory openly acknowledge this. <laughs> uh, like Denny Burke openly acknowledges that queer theory does, um, has made some of the biggest contributions to deconstructing sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. uh, and then turns around immediately and still points the finger at queer people and blames them for somehow defining themselves by sexuality, which is not at all what queer people want and not at all what queer people have been fighting for over the past century. So some of those words that would have very sexual connotations, gay and lesbian, um, were intended to broaden beyond mm -hmm. sexuality and capture kind of the wholeness of the person. Yeah. Why, why or how did homosexuals as a label get attached to an, a human identity as opposed to a specific sin like greed mm. or, you know, pride or something? Like, how did that become an identity marker as opposed to mm. just a, an action on a vice list? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I, I go into this in my book. 
Um, but basically, you got to go back even farther. Um, I, you know, I took you back like a century to Freud, but you got to go all the way back to the Protestant Reformation in order to understand how um, something like sexuality became attached to human identity as this like marker of who we are um and uh, what you see in the protestant reformation a lot of people know that martin luther is the one who uh, tore down the requirement of celibacy for the priesthood that's something that's very well known um, and is often talked about as like a major success of the reformation that um pastors and priests and Protestant denominations can now get married uh, and a recognition that sex is a good thing. It is a gift from God, that marriage ought to be honored. All of these things are recognized as uh, major successes of the Protestant Reformation. What's not as understood is how Martin Luther got there um, how he made this argument that you could not require priests to be celibate. And, well, how did he make that argument? Uh, he argued that sex was an essential part of human nature, um, just as necessary as eating and sleeping, um, going to the bathroom even, he said, like, People can't choose, he argued, to have sex. People must have sex because it is part of their very nature. And so to require someone to be celibate is just, it's antithetical, um, not just to like this, not just to like how human beings are physically, um, you know, constituted, but to the... God's very design, the way God created humans. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, when you read this rationale provided by Luther, it's very striking because you see a shift in uh, talking about sex as um, an action, something that you do, to talking about sex as part of you something that you are and i have a quote that i reference in my book that just brings this out super super explicitly um here we go so uh luther says that sex is just as necessary this is a direct quote as the fact that I am a man. In other words, he is drawing a like essential comparison, like saying these two are equivalent. Like when you talk about sex, it is equivalent to talking about you being a man or a woman. Um, it is a nature and just and disposition just as innate as the organs involved in it. Therefore, just as God does not command anyone to be a man or a woman, but creates them the way they have to be, so he does not command them to multiply, but creates them so that they have to multiply. So, in other words, what you see in that quote in Martin Luther's reasoning is this linking of sex to human identity for legitimately the first time in Western civilization. This had never been suggested before, what would have been anathema, like not okay ever in Christian history, um, was certainly condemned by the Catholic Church at the time. Um, but this registered with uh, millions of people as the Protestant Reformation was taking off and became really a foundational way of thinking about sexuality um, for centuries to come. Um, and uh, it was a, a, an essential part of uh, what took place during colonial conquests, um, uh, where yeah. there was this, you know, belief that 
um, tying of sexuality to white identity and black and indigenous identity um, where, you know, uh, black people had perverted sexualities because um, they were inferior human beings um, and white people had pure sexualities because they were superior human beings. Uh, So all of that thinking, all of that reasoning, it just like you can directly trace it back to the Reformation, to the reasoning provided by Luther for overthrowing the requirements of celibacy and a lot of the um, rules and regulations that the Catholic Church had around marriage and, and sex in general. Um, ultimately leading to Freud and then where we are today. Yeah. What? Tim, do you have anything you want to throw in? I'm just listening. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yes, we are. So, Bridget, what? I mean, obviously, we could talk through each, you know, of the seven ways, but I, I think there are a lot of us who would instinctively say of course we've done great harm we know people who've been harmed we know mm-hmm. what does repentance look like particularly yeah. if you're a church community that holds an officially kind of non-affirming position or a traditional mm-hmm. position how what does repentance look like in those communities yeah um because i i think for um you know, affirming communities, and I don't even know if, if, if side A or side B is the better way to describe that. But in affirming communities, it seems like repentance is, is a lot clearer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would imagine that for folks like yourself who um, are wrestling through these things and yet still holding to a traditional Christian ethic, what, what does repentance look like in those communities? Yeah, it's definitely not an easy thing to work through because the traditional sexual ethic is so um, associated now with so much harm and so much Mm -hmm. trauma uh, because it has been so much of that harm has been done in the name of protecting those ethics in the name of protecting the family and uh, all of this you know, sexual morality and purity and all these things. And it's so attached to so much of that harm that it is a much more difficult conversation to start having. And, you know, for myself, I do 100% believe that it is possible to walk in repentance while holding to a traditional belief about sexual ethics. Um, I myself follow a traditional belief on sexual ethics. And so, you know, I wouldn't be doing that if I thought it was impossible um, to follow traditional sexual ethics um, and still uh, have a healthy faith for queer people. Um, So, uh, yeah, it is possible, but it's definitely a lot more challenging. And I would say a a really important place to start is to um, step back, let go of the conversation and just listen. And uh, I think that is harder to do than is often I don't know, assumed, because when I say step back and just listen, I really mean step back, Um, like let go for a season of having requirements um, attached to membership around, uh, you know, what you believe about sexuality, let go of like needing to police other people, let go of like, all of these things that maybe become very naturally to a lot of church ministries um, and uh, step back and take some time to think, take some time to consider, take some time to learn um, and let go of the need for control on this topic. 
And that's really hard because I think there is uh, kind of an assumption that in order to shepherd a congregation well, you have to provide very explicit instructions on like what people need to do um, in order to be, you know, walking in sexual holiness. Um, But the reality is that um, that process of shepherding the congregation is often the first place that queer people are experiencing harm, where well-intentioned pastors are attempting to shepherd the congregation well and inadvertently doing things that really, really cause um, lasting damage to a queer person's relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, I would say that in order to reverse and uh, figure out a better way to shepherd your conversation, your, your congregation, you gotta, you gotta do a hard stop um, and pull back to regroup um, and reconsider things, uh, which is not to say that um, shepherding is not important. Um, it's to say like, you know, recognize with humility that the way the shepherding is taking place right now is probably doing damage to a lot of people. And so rather than continuing that, (laughs) it's better to stop (laughs) and figure out a better way to do that. And figuring out that better way requires a lot of listening, requires a lot of learning and growth um, in order to um, come back and have a better idea of how, how to handle a lot of this. Mm-hmm. We've been trying to, or we've been having conversations as we talk about church a lot, like, cause I, I govern my classroom the same way that you have said that you do. Like it's, mm-hmm. I, I make them circle up all the tables so everybody can see each other's faces. I don't lecture mm-hmm. mostly because I hate lecturing, but yeah. <laughs> I never learned anything from somebody who just sat there and talked at mm-hmm. me. And yeah. so we try to do the same thing. We try to engage in conversations about things and, try to create a safe environment that even if you disagree with somebody, you can hear them and they can hear you and we can kind of throw it all on the table. Yeah. You just imagine how healthy that would be in a church environment where you're not just getting lectured at, but you're mm-hmm. able to be a part of a conversation rather than, you know, like you said, the set of rules, like adhere to these, if not, mm-hmm. you know, peace. Yeah. Not even peace, just <laughs> no. Yeah. So I think that's such a good point. Um, I think conversations really make a difference Um, and conversations where like the church leadership are (laughs) de-emphasized because people can very easily feel teamed up against when like, you know, the pastor invites, you know, X, Y, Z people for a conversation with him. And actually it's just an opportunity for him to like control the conversation. (laughs) Um, So yeah, having conversations where um, the people that are invited in um, have power put in their hands to like really express um, what they're thinking through and to like really, um, you know, put things on the table to figure out together as, as a community. Yeah. No, that's really good. You know, Bridget, you are just an outstanding conversation partner and I love, (laughs) you know, whether or not, I mean, the goal of a work like this can't be fully expressed and whether or not you agree with it. I think (laughs) that what this provokes is examination of the double standards and repentance thereof Mm -hmm. yeah um because i think that's my small experience that's where a lot of the harm is that i've seen personally yeah has come from the fact that you know divorce isn't an issue you even talk about contraception how christian (laughs) views have evolved in pretty radical ways that the the teaching of the bible on contraception was super clear and you were a heretic if you dismissed it. Now it's not even a thing. Yeah. Um, similar things have happened with divorce. Hello, yeah. my son. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, for me, I think one of the ways I'm learning to walk in repentance is by looking for the double standards. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously you need help to see them because they 
are invisible to so many of us who, you know, have been operating in certain paradigms for a long time. Yeah. Um, Tim, do you have any last questions for our friend before we let her go? I don't think so. Yeah, it's a lot to chew on. And yeah. we, we haven't done, I, I never want to, in, in interviews where we're talking about a book, it's always tough because you want to give people enough of a feel for the book, but yeah. you don't want to give away the book. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm going, yeah, this was, this was great, but it doesn't do the book justice. Because the, the book, well, I mean, it just, it, 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 it asks and poses categories and questions that, you know, I don't think many of us uh, have ever had to think through. Mm -hmm. And and that's our privilege, right? That's, we've never had to be uh, coming at the church from a marginalized perspective. And so, um, so I would highly encourage people to get it. Where can people find you? I know we, we mentioned this last time, but I always want to mention it again, because you're a heck of a follow on the tweets. Yeah. So, um, Twitter, my handles at traveling nun, um, the same handle on Instagram at traveling nun. <laughs> Where did that come from? Cause I just think it's the best. Yeah. I, um, so I started my blog, uh, Oh, over a decade ago now. And, um, it started off as like, wanting to just engage in, uh, reflections, um, on, uh, social justice issues um, as I was working in a low-income neighborhood. And mm. um, and at the same time, I was really feeling uh, like I was called in a lot of ways to um, live a life uh, similar to uh, monastic communities. Um, but, you know, living a monastic life is not really... There's not a whole lot of opportunities to pursue that kind of life in Protestant churches. And so I kind of felt like I was pursuing a life that, you know, was uh, in line with um, uh, monasticism, but like in a very Protestant sort of way. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then like traveling, I felt as if, you know, I was. Uh, my faith was very much a journey and um, that I was just kind of taking it one step at a time and seeing where God would lead me. And so I guess there you have it. Um, that brought me to, I guess, the name of my blog, uh, Meditations of a Traveling Nun, and yeah. then my handle, Traveling Nun. <laughs> that is about a thousand times more thoughtfulness than I put into any handle I've ever had anywhere. It's so fitting. It's so fitting that you thought about it this way. Yeah, exactly. Totally unoriginal. Well, Bridget, listen, thank you. Um, the book is Heavy Burden, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. And for those of us who um, are really wrestling with how best to walk in repentance, this is an outstanding place to start. Um, a lot of the stories that are told and the interviews that are recorded are just heartbreaking. And, um, and so anyway, I just uh, commend it to you. Thank you for your work on that. And uh, you've got two middle-aged white guys cheering you on for whatever that's worth. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And yeah, it was great being on here again. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us